Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at understanding how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm Davis Johnson, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus. As every other week, we walk through a few passages in the Bible from a cross-centered point of view before answering a but what about question that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Chris, my friends, it's good to see you on this fine day of recording. Uh, Laura, last time we heard from you, you were on the verge of potentially contracting COVID after your kids did, and and with it, canceling some fun plans. So we've been waiting with bated breath. Did you get the COVIDs? Did you cancel the plans? Or do you bring us good news with great joy? How's it going? What happened? Wow, so many questions that are all the same, Davis. <laughs> um, I did not, in fact, get COVID, which continues my streak of never having tested positive. Um, so that was exciting. Um, so, yeah, my husband and I were able to go on our trip. Uh, we went up north, uh, kind of outside Tra- Traverse City there into Lake Michigan. And we spent, I think, four days standing waist high in Lake Michigan casting for salmon. Um, first time trying it. And we caught um, n- no salmon. Uh, we caught <laughs> one tiny little uh, goby, which if you don't know what a goby is, it's about like three or four inches long. Um, and it's actually an invasive species in our lake. So um, we kind of did negative good work there. <laughs> and we just, we all the big fish, it was actually pretty amazing because they were swimming around us in big schools trying to find the mouth of the river. Uh, but they didn't want anything to do with us. So I, it was disappointing, but also pretty awesome. <laughs> that that still beats COVID. Like if it's, it does, it's not you know, catching if fish. If I had to scale it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't scale the fish because we, we found out it's just three inches, but yeah. everything else, it's all better than COVID. That's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, how what about, about you, Chris? Chris? Ooh, same wavelength today. Synchronized. Wow. Now I feel like I really have to say something important. Uh, I'm glad you did your part to, to Laura to, to D, you know, basically degobify or D yeah. Clean up the lake from this invasive species. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I'm doing pretty good guys. Good to see you again. Uh, I've been thinking, I was on the internet this morning, uh, noting a friend. I don't know if you guys heard this, but, uh, the twin cities marathon got canceled on Sunday. And so, which, uh, is, I think pretty unprecedented. I'm not a runner, so I don't know for sure when the last time that was or, uh, when, when it happened, but, uh, or if it happened or not, but, uh, but pretty, yeah, uh, awful, I guess. Right. For people that are training all year and, um, and then showing up two hours before, uh, to, to a canceled race. So I feel pretty awful about that. I, I was noting a friend, uh, she had run the 10 mile still. So I think some people still went out to run it, but, uh, but there was some, uh, there was a lot of kind of, you know, riffraff in response to it. My friend, another friend of mine was on the, was uh, noting that people were posting about it. And one individual said, I, my husband and I bought 300 bananas to pass out to runners. And now we have those in our house. And so there's stuff like that going on too, where I guess 
that's a lot of banana bread uh, to make, but, but uh, no, I, I feel awful for the runners, but I was just thinking there's probably a good, maybe an article or two in there. One of you guys should write on maybe how our works don't ultimately matter in the end uh, or something like that, or how God doesn't <laughs> need our bananas or something. God doesn't need uh, our bananas. But uh, no, but it's uh, kind of a big deal up here. It's 90, 92 or 95 degrees in October for Minnesota is pretty nuts. It was beautiful to walk out in, but, but too bad for the runners. So, um, but Davis, how about you? How you doing? Well, I mean, I'm competing with D Gobify and God doesn't need your bananas. So as far as those two things go, I think I'm, I'm yeah. doing great actually compared to those <laughs> two items. Uh, let's see. This is the last time I saw you guys. I, I ended up going to a, uh, a play very last minute. Um, and some tickets came our way and, uh, I parked in ramp a in downtown Minneapolis. If you guys know ramp a, yeah. if you've ever experienced it, never, ever park in ramp a, uh, what was I thinking? I got there pretty late and apparently there was a, a pretty heavy metal concert happening at a venue down the street. So the ramp was full. And so my car was routed all the way to the roof in the rain. And so it was like, I'm paying, you know, arm and a leg to park in a ramp. And, but at least I was going to have covering, but no, I was on the roof. So I got soaked before this play. <laughs> then I got let out uh, of the play right when the concert lets out. And so I'm sprinting to my car as I'm watching, you know, the clientele from this concert uh, exit the premises. We're all heading to Ramp A together. And then I couldn't find my car on on the roof of Ramp A. So I'm sprinting in the rain looking for this thing. And I start getting chirped by all these concert goers that I was getting wet and uh, eventually made it to my car. But by then, both the play and the concert had evacuated. And so all of the ramp was just a parking lot. And I sat in my car for or over an hour before I made it out of that ramp. And uh, I experienced some new feelings in the midst of sitting there for an hour. I probably felt like a banana bread maker. God doesn't yeah. need <laughs> yeah. my parking abilities. Your parking abilities, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so yes. new feelings since I saw you guys last. That was a good time. <laughs> Don't take your parking advice from me, I think is the moral of that story. But we're not talking about parking today. Uh, here's my transition, right? There it is. Uh, we're going to be talking about Exodus 7. Uh, Psalm 13, we're going to continue in 2 Corinthians 8, and then our But What About passage is going to be the great banquet found in Luke 14. Uh, so to begin, we're going to look at Exodus 7, and this is going to be the first showdown in the Old Testament of Moses and Aaron taking on Pharaoh. And so God's people, as was promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, are going to be enslaved for 400 years. And then God is going to raise up a deliverer to come and rescue them. And his name is Moses. And this is the first kind of fruition or the first picture of what that deliverance is going to look like with Moses going toe to toe with Pharaoh. And we meet some intriguing characters. So Moses and his brother Aaron are going to go toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with some magicians that belong to Pharaoh as they do some amazing feats put on by God that the magicians are actually able to mimic. Things like throwing a staff down that turns to snakes, things like striking the river and making it turn into blood, and then the plague of frogs and gnats and on and on and on. And we were even just chatting before that the magicians are just, they're able to mimic all of these things, but 
once it gets to the gnats, that's when the magicians are like, whoa, who are these guys? (laughs) We can't do that. We can, we can turn the Nile to blood and we can make snakes out of staves and create frogs on the spot. But these gnats, man, this is way above our pay grade. Good luck. Too complex. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't dabble in too much dark magic myself. No, none, none. Uh, but it seems like frogs would be easier to make out of nothing than gnats, you know, just kind of reason seems to suggest that. So it is kind of funny and weird, you know, that gnats are this, I think they even say this must be the finger of God. This uh, is it. So they're, this is the they're really, yeah, they really see the hand of, of Yahweh. They see the hand of the God of Israel and the gnats, but, but not in the other ones that they're able to mimic. So, uh, you got, you got to laugh. But, um, but yeah, one thing, maybe if I, I could just throw out something to start here, I, I think the sorcerers, the, the uh, evil magicians are an interesting figure uh, in that they, in how they contrast with Moses and Aaron. Um, and I, I don't know about you guys or even just any of our listeners, but it's, a, it's always been an interesting moment here where you kind of wonder like, why, you know, why is God, I mean, God surely knows this is going to happen. So why is he, why is he allowing miracles or telling Moses to do miracles that he knows that Pharaoh is going to through his evil magicians is going to say, yep, I can do that too. You know, it seems like almost a waste of time. Or it seems like almost like, why doesn't he start with the gnats, you know, and just show that he's the more powerful uh, God and being here. And I, I think one of the answers, uh, comes to us when we see that um, the Bible is a tale of two covenants. We say this a lot on this podcast and and elsewhere at Red Tree, we're big on this, how how the Bible is a story of twos and, and dualities and Moses and Aaron being uh, kind of standing across the aisle here, so to speak, so to speak, and and having this this uh, this showdown, essentially. What the sorcerers then I think are an emblem of is that first covenant, that covenant of works, that covenant of law, where they're basically saying with their dark magic that, well, we can do what your God does. We're all sufficient. We're enough. Uh, you know, I think I think if you think about that on one level, that's very akin to saying, I can save myself. You know, I, I'm I'm altogether all sufficient. There's a nod here, I think, back to the the what Adam and Eve did when they took that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They they were saying through the devil's lie that we can be gods unto ourselves, right? And so, I think that's the true nature of dark magic is that it draws us not just away from God, but it bolsters the self which is the antithesis of grace. And so then I think from there, when you see God work throughout this story, certainly when the Nats thing happens and they can't match it and they say, this is the finger of God, that's kind of the initial moment. Uh, But even before that and after that too, you see God bringing grace into the story. The second covenant, the, the, the better news of Jesus, I think flows in kind of against what they're all about and what they, what they represent. Yeah, for sure. And kind of following that thread, Chris, like, I think that plays so well in just this kind of weird imagery that we have um, right after Moses' staff becomes a snake of his snake staff um, swallowing up the snake staffs of these magicians. Um, And so if we kind of follow that thread, we have kind of like the work of God um, swallowing up our works, right? That just don't measure up. and, you know, I love the staff in the story of the Exodus because I feel like it's its own little character in this story. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of it kind of takes on like this Christ like persona. Um, it You know, we have Moses throwing it down and it becoming a snake and it kind of 
throws forward in the story of Moses when he's in the wilderness and, you know, the people have rebelled and you have these venomous snakes coming in and biting people and they're dropping left and right. Um, And God tells Moses to make the staff and put a snake on it um, and lift it up. And then when the people look at the snake on the staff, um, they're instantly healed uh, just by looking and then throw it forward to John, where Jesus says that the son of man, so him, would have to be lifted up um, on this, like the snake on a staff um, from Moses. Um, I just feel like you have this um, tool of God that performs wonders uh, throughout the story of the Exodus becoming this sin-like creature, um, which is the story of Jesus, right? Like it says in Second Corinthians that he who knew, knew no sin became sin um, on our behalf. So it's just a very like Christ-like imagery of, of this tool of God becoming um, snake-like. Um And then even when you go to the Nile turning into blood, um, you kind of have that imagery of of the staff striking the water, um, just like the spear struck Jesus. And then it's kind of the opposite, right? Here we have water turning into blood. And then on the cross, we have Jesus's blood turning into living water for us. Um, Just a a lot of imagery that's very Christ and cross-like. Yeah, I was is- I, I was really moved by the very, some very similar concepts, especially with the Nile being struck. I mean, it literally verse 17 says, this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And this is the first plague we're told. And it's it's the very striking of a river so that it turns into blood. Uh, and as you want to pull that thread, uh, like you're saying, Laura, I, th- I think there's a lot of places to go to, to connect this to the overall story. One of which is just the concept of a river. I mean, it comes up again and again and again. I mean, it's all the way back in the garden. But one of my favorite places is in Psalm 46. It's at... Uh, it's a, it's a Psalm of trouble. Uh, literally it begins with the earth is quaking. The mountains are falling into the ocean. And it's, I I think it even says like the floor is falling out from underneath you. And all of us have experienced moments like this that feel like, oh my, like the worst possible things are all happening around me. But then the Psalm interrupts itself right, right in the middle after describing this. And it just says, but there's this river whose streams make glad the city of God. And that same language is echoed at the end of the story. And I think it's Revelation 21 or 22, where we hear about a river that that waters the earth or gives bears fruit for the nations. And it's all flowing from that tree of life. And I don't I don't think it's too hard to connect the tree of life to the cross. Uh, but if somebody is less convinced by that, I think the place that I would go is Jesus's first miracle. Uh, it's very fun to see the overlap between this passage and Jesus's first miracle in John's gospel. Just like the first plague is water being turned into blood, Jesus's first miracle is taking place at a wedding, and it's where he very famously turns water into wine. And he brings a type of joy to the party that wasn't had yet. In fact, when they first sip it, they say, you guys are partying wrong, right? Why are you bringing out the best wine after everybody's already had some to drink? 
but it's because, uh, like you were saying, Chris, the this, this story is one of moving from lesser to something greater, something old to something new, moving from less uh, tasteful wine to better tasting wine, moving from waters of judgment to waters of joy. Uh, and I don't think it's an accident that that uh, wine, or it's not too hard to connect to the wine imagery to the very blood that's spilled. That's the language he uses when he connects it to his own covenant. And so I, Jesus is just excited about this story in Exodus 7 because you see him embodying the judgment that's going to take place uh, that we deserve so that he can say to us, actually, now I'm I'm giving you a river that makes all things glad in the midst of calamity, come and drink. It's the most soul satisfying thing you could do. It's the greatest problem solving technique you can know of come to church and take communion. <laughs> uh, that's a good place to maybe cheer, turn the page to uh, Psalm 13. Nice short Psalm, just six verses. So I'll just read it for us. It says this, how long Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Yeah, this is a great psalm. It's um, one of the things I like about it is the in verse one where he says, "How long, O Lord, will you forget me? And how long will you hide your face from me?" Uh, one thing, one of the things that strikes me about this, with that kind of second, um, you know, line of the parallelistic idea, essentially, is um, this idea of hiding, and um, you know, in, in a very real sense, uh, as Christians. Um, you know, we, we almost can't read this as though it's prescriptive or emblematic of the Christian experience because, uh, you know, we have a God in Christ who isn't hiding. And, you know, we do from him, uh, but he never do, he doesn't from us. Uh, and you could, I guess you could argue that in the old system that there is a type of divine hiding where God says, come close to me, but also stay far away uh, through the temple. Uh, but the idea is that now on this side of the cross, this psalm, uh, almost can't really be sung, you know, and, and repeated at face value, at least, uh, or in a one-to-one -one way for the, for the Christian, God is not hiding from us. Uh, we see this in the new Testament where now we can see God's face. Uh, and that face is Jesus Christ, Jesus being the perfect imprint or representation of the father. So through his spilt blood, we have that kind of, uh, access and, and, uh, and, and sight of his face. Um, now, and in one sense we can, we can feel as though God is hiding because that that's just the reality of life. And, you know, whether it be sickness or whether it be just a severe suffering, uh, we have that as human beings. But I think that if, if we see this though, as Christ's prayer on the cross, uh, not, not ultimately the human cry from the new Testament vantage point, but Christ's prayer on the cross where the father did hide his face from Jesus. Uh, he, uh, when, when Christ cried out and said, why my God, my God, why have you, forsaken me. Uh, psalm 13 is a beckoning ahead, I think. Uh, being a psalm of David, we see this, right? That David is a forerunner of Christ and his suffering in his prayers forecast the the song of Jesus from, uh, from the cross, that he 
would be hidden from by God for us. So we don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, whenever we have those fears and where we feel like God is far away, we look to these cries and we don't see a, a lot of times, uh, again, first and foremost, that this is how you should pray, but we see someone that prayed for us or in our place uh, so that we can have a better reality of, in this case, non-hiding. Yeah, I definitely, I love that, Chris. Um, and I think reading this psalm in particular, um, kind of with like that Christ forward thinking, um, almost makes it more comforting in kind of like our olive press seasons of life. Um, because I went, you know, like we've all gone through just really hard seasons in our life. And a few years ago, I really had to come to terms, like when everything else is stripped away is the cross and Christ and grace enough. Um, and it's kind of like in the Psalm where it's just, you know, hardship, hardship, hardship. And then right at the end you have, but I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And that's at the end of the day, like the cross is him dealing bountifully with us, despite everything else that's going on. Um, and so I think kind of thinking like that, like the, ultimately this is Christ's prayer, um, because we are we are not hidden from God anymore. Um, I think we can just kind of keep that mindset that not only did Christ experience whatever it is we're going through, but he experienced so much more on our behalf. Um, and so we can kind of like pray these, you know, with that like gut, gut wrenching, um, heart churning feeling that we have sometimes in these very hard lives. But we can also exalt and and just like David at the end of that prayer, just be like, you know what, regardless, like you have dealt bountifully with me um, through the work and life and death of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And there, we never want to suggest that you can't pray these things uh, for yourself. In fact, I think uh, verses three and four offer a really helpful guide. If you just feel stuck in your own prayer life, just saying these words are actually quite uh, life-giving. He just says, look on me and answer me, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Specifically, this request for God to give light to our eyes. Uh, just like the the river uh, concept, these light and eyes or seeing are two things that come up again and again and again in the scriptures. Uh, but the change is often from us seeing the right things and then acting accordingly to God giving us the ability to see the right things and respond with praise and joy at all that he has done. And so I just think even on a daily basis, there's that there's just a really grace forward prayer behind these words that if if you don't give light to my eyes today, God, my day is going to be consisting of sleeping in death and my enemies are overcoming me. And on a very practical level, that just looks like my self-centeredness and my tendency towards it and the wake that I leave behind when I am consumed by me, me, me versus you giving me light. Uh, and light at the end of the day is capital L, light is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And so give me more Jesus, help me to see him and what he's doing and where he's leading me today. Uh, with that, let's let's check out 2 Corinthians 8, second part of 2 Corinthians 8, and our uh, strategy for raising money for the Red Tree Pod, 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 just kidding. <laughs> this is the... Uh, a passage that uh, many churches will turn to during a giving campaign, rightly so, I think, because it just changes the way we think about 
our relationship to money and giving. And as we looked at uh, last time, the first part of 2 Corinthians 8 just shows how the gospel is the driving force when it comes to the way we think about money. Um, that the cure to greed, in other words, is not generosity. The cure to greed is the gospel, which leads to a heart that overflows with generosity. Uh, but the passage continues with Paul talking about sending Titus. And he says this beginning in verse 16, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you for Titus, not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him, the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he has chosen, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we were taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with him our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Yeah, I love, I mean, just the the letters, I feel, feel like Paul just says it differently, right? He kind of hits differently. <laughs> um, but I feel like in his letters, often Paul kind of takes this like father God type um, on. Um, and, you know, you see it when he's sending um, Timothy is, is the big one where he talks a lot about sending Timothy. And then in this passage, he's sending Titus. Um, so he's kind of sending a representative, just like God, the father sent Jesus Christ, the son. Um, and you see that it kind of like when you have that imagery, it makes it even more so when you see in verse 17, when it said, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to of his own accord. Um, and just that comfort, comforting notion that Jesus, you know, was running towards us on his own accord, like with earnest, you know, um, I just, I just love this imagery that Paul often kind of hands to us. And I love that, you know, he's sending out this kind of like almost Trinitarian threesome um, to the Corinthians. And you have Titus who's eager to go. Um, and then an unnamed person who's famous because of the gospel that he brings. And then another unnamed person who has been tested and found earnest. Um and it just kind of this all like encompassing um, what Christ is for us ultimately. Yeah, I was really struck by uh, not only Titus being sent, but like you're mentioning, these unnamed brothers who are famous, uh, particular because of their service to the gospel. Uh, so my, my first observation there is just the, the priority of the gospel for the health of a church, that the reason he's sending this guy to the Corinthian church is because He's faithful and continually preaching the gospel to this church. And and Paul knows, hey, at the end of the day, that's what's most important. That's what's central to the church. If you center anything else in the life of the church, it will implode because it's not sturdy enough to handle uh, the, the, the time-tested culture wars and all the things that are coming our way. Like if you... If you follow the way of whatever is just the hot button issue of the time and make that your thing, like you you just set yourself up for a ticking time bomb. You know, the gospel is the only thing that, I mean, we're talking about a 2000 years later, 
uh, because we can't get enough of it. And so I just love that this guy is known because he, at the end of the day, is just continuing to serve the gospel, removing barriers so that people can hear it and uh, putting it on full display. Neon lights, uh, it, just that Jesus gave himself for your sins. Uh, secondly, I, I do kind of see a kind of a hiddenness to Christ in in this unnamed brother. Um, that's kind of what becomes of all of us. Like when we become Christians, we become these, we become named by God, but then unnamed in terms of the world and the way the world values things. Like it, there's just a freedom in being hidden, covered by this gospel that allows us and that whoever this guy is. I mean, he just looks so much like Jesus that he's being sent along the unnamed brother to come and service the gospel so that people can hear it and have life eternal that begins right now. So that even in suffering, even in in the joys of the world, they can have something that's so much better. The very riches of God, we're told, are made available to us in service to the gospel. Yeah, I know in in my church setting at Hiawatha Church, like as a a pastor and a preacher and someone concerned about setting a culture of grace at a church, I, I, I often use the phrase that loving Christians is a premier Christian ethic Um, in one sense, because you see it so much, just this call to love one another in a church setting. I I think that's not a call to global humanitarianism, though that's not bad, obviously. Uh, It's a specific call to loving people that you know in your local church setting who are brothers and sisters who have the same father uh, being God and a brother uh, like Christ who's close as a brother. Uh, so I think that loving believers, though, is uh, is a grace. I think you see if Titus is a picture of Christ here, if he is uh, this bro- unnamed brother is in service to the gospel, then, you know, I think caring for the physical needs of other believers, you know, that that, you know, and loving them in that capacity has this unique opportunity to put on display the gospel itself, uh, which is when God served us and gave, as Ephesians 1 says, the riches of his grace through his blood. And I think as we we, uh, looked at last week and earlier in in chapter 8, it talks about how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, has been given to us, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And I think that's just such a stage-setting verse for this context in what Titus is doing, but also in the whole New Testament that you see the gospel itself being dramatized. It's it's like a, a play almost, and, and Christians are the actors. And it's more real than that, of course, but I think that's a good analogy that we aren't ourselves, that are, it's not just about us. And it's not a law that, that Paul is not quoting love your neighbor or else here. There's no consequence. There's no um, threat that will be separated from God if we don't do this enough. Uh, but instead, uh, this is an opportunity to put the gospel on display with joy and freedom and to love others as we've first been loved uh, to hell and back by our Savior. Such a freeing way to approach ethics and one that's often missed, uh, which actually is a good tie into our But What About passage today, and that is that of the Great Banquet, which is found in Luke 14. Uh, So the context of this is Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees. He's at their house, and he had just finished saying uh, kind of an invitation uh, to the host that when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors If you do, they will invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this is the context of the parable. And somebody sitting at the table when they heard Jesus do this, 
I think they're feeling pretty pretty cool that they're sitting right now in a way that resembles the great banquet of the resurrection. And so he pipes up and he says to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And that's when Jesus gives the parable of the great banquet, which if Jesus responds to something you say with a parable, run (laughs) (laughs) or strap in maybe (laughs) take a seat or run the opposite direction uh because yeah that's that's where he's gonna go after he's he's gonna describe actually what he had just said about the way to host a banquet but he's gonna use a, a parable and it's gonna be about inviting people to come in and all the people that were invited are going to give an excuse. One's going to say, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another's going to say, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on the way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So the servant comes back and reports to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the blind, the blind, easy for me to say, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So the reason uh, I think that we want to cover this as a but what about passage is that, uh, first of all, whenever we read a parable, it's good to to start by distrusting your intuition when reading a parable. And so almost any parable can be a but what about passage in the sense that we likely don't first hear about the gospel or see Jesus bringing good news to us. We instead just kind of get a little panicky and then we want to fix said panic by being a good person. And in this passage, that looks like not being like those who turn down the invitation. And so Maybe we'll zoom in on the ways that they turned on the invitation and make sure we don't buy a field or make sure we don't go get married. Um, and that that's a left turn maybe when we should go right. Uh, the, the other way that I think we misinterpret this passage is by presenting ourselves as the servant. And so that we begin to go, okay, so when I have a dinner party now, I got to look like what the servant is is doing. That's the point of this passage. And if I do that, then God will be pleased with me and I will feast with him at the banquet, the great banquet, the feast of the kingdom of God. Uh, but we would say both of those are, are actually left turns. And there's a lot of good news to be found in this passage. Where do you guys see good news in the great banquet? Well, I think yeah. that. Oh, go ahead, Laura. You, you first. Sorry. I'll, I'll chime in later. <laughs> I'm glad you guys bring it up. I would like to just say. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think kind of coming to these parables and like you said, kind of um, first taking that step back um, and not kind of assigning yourself to any of like the heroes of it right away. <laughs> um, and maybe looking actually at the at the ones that contribute the least and maybe just starting there um i i feel like at the end of the day we we look at this and 
ultimately, um, we are the crippled and the lame and the blind, um, which is good news. And I feel like usually that's like, wait, no, I don't want to be that like in your day to day life. But if you look at the Gospels, it, it's kind of a blessing um, because Jesus often pushes his way past the people who kind of appear to have it all together. And he goes towards the broken. And that's what's happening here. Um, this kind of gives very, very, um, okay, this is, I'm going to say it wrong. Um, Mephibosheth. Did I say, I said, I think I said it right. Um, <laughs> Sounded great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been practicing. No, uh, Mephibosheth. <laughs> right. uh, very Mephibosheth and David vibes that we see in Second Samuel, where we have a king inviting the crippled son of his enemy to dinner, which is just outlandish, right? Um, but that's exactly what's happening in this parable. And then ultimately, that's exactly what's happening with us. You know, we have the king who's inviting his crippled and lame and blind and just begging enemies um, to the great banquet. Um, so I just feel like there's a lot of comfort here as long as we're kind of assigning ourselves the, the correct roles. Right. I, I use the phrase sometimes, uh, and I'm saying the same thing you guys were saying, uh, but we need to be careful with who we identify with in a biblical story. I think that's an important rule or guide for good proper interpretation is uh, be careful who you identify with. So, you know, we're not the servant. Uh, the the where this the servant is Jesus. We're we're being moved towards. Uh, I think that's huge. Uh, even even in Second Corinthians, like maybe I, I talked about the importance of loving and putting on display the love of God, and that is important. But we also need to be loved. And so if if Titus uh, is a Christ figure, then maybe we're more like the Corinthians, you know, receiving that desire to be poured upon by the wealth of grace. Uh, but but back to this. A great parable, like even in the first section, you know, you, you see these excuses kind of come out that we all have uh, before God, uh, Christian or not, these can well up in our heart where we we think it's about us. If, if you look at what they're saying, they're, they're talking about uh, things in an eye-centered way. Like, I've just bought a house. I, I made something from scratch. I need to see to it. I need to enjoy it. I, I must go and do something. I just got married. So, so I can't come. Uh, it, it's, uh, it reminds me of uh, Matthew seven, where a, a judgment, Jesus is saying, I'll, I'll ne I, I never knew those of you who are basically boasting and bragging about your spiritual performance. And so that kind of becomes the crux. Is it about us and doing, or do we respond to the invitation? And in a way, none of us have responded well. I think that's why you see the second group of people that aren't just, they're actually not invited. Uh, this, I think I, in Isaiah and Paul quotes this in Romans 10, uh, something like uh, God had the audacity to, uh, to call people who weren't his people, his people, and to save people who weren't even searching for him. Yeah. And I think you see that play out here in the parable that it's grace is so uh, crazy and so surprising and so much in the hand of God that that he's saving people who aren't even invited, who who aren't even able to come because they're crippled and lame and blind. And and so I, I love the replacement and the sort of the juxtaposition of covenants here, uh, kind of a covenants of works of I did this for God and I can't go because I'm focused too much on me replaced by a covenant where God actually sends his son to go out and grab by the arm and love and say, uh, and, and say, you're invited now because I've come to you and, and come in and sit, sit at the table of the king, like Mephibosheth, like you said, Laura, but like all of us sinners who 
have been prepared a place, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis simply of the love of God and the spilled blood of his son, which, which uh, paid for our fare. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Austin Sego and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you like what you've heard, please do drop us a rating or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Christ the